you come out in loungewear. Well, well, I've got to go that. shopping, and okay. then I've got to go and get my... You see my eye? Look at my good. eye. Massive pupil. You've got a big pupil and a little no, pupil. The little one's not the problem. The big one's the problem. Chinch has got a tiny You've only know got smacked in the face with the old elastic band. My eye's broken. What did I watch the other day that was about people with tiny pupils, and that was a sign of... Was it a primary school? No, it was Novichok. Did you watch the Salisbury poisoning thing? One of the signs of having Novichok poisoning is you get tiny pupils. No, the tiny yeah. one isn't the issue. He's been half poisoned. The big one. Look at the big one. It's enormous. What's to it? I got smacked in the face with an elasticated resistance band. I is that what it's done? Yes, my iris is stuck to my lens. Oh, apparently. no. Yeah. That sounds awful, Chinch. Y you don't look like it sounds awful. It sounds... I mean, I mean, partly I'm amused. Are you? He said, luckily I had such good reactions that I closed my eyelid and then it boshed me. He said, if your eye had been open, I probably would have lost my eye. Is that right? Yeah. What have you learnt, Chinch? What have I learnt about what? Don't do any exercise ever. No. Resistance bands need to be stronger because mm -hmm. I'm is that better? so powerful better, I snapped it. it. Yeah. But you take Steve's jacket off. Is that Steve's jacket? Well, you think I'd ever wear something like this? Yes. <laughs> no, it's not made by Superdry and it's not sort of mottled grey. It's made by Paul Smith. Look at the way that... St oh, thank you so much. Steve Jackie. is the Look best... Steve, Steve is drops his jacket collection. Steve off. is the best dressed of the... Tommy oh, by far. Yeah. So Steve's come as Shaking Stevens. I could have come of uh, Morton Harkett from Aha, couldn't I? If we're dressing as... Is he 1980s? Was Aha 1980s? Aha was 1980s. Yes, very yeah. much so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like it. Behind the green door. But equally, Chinch's presence on the field was an invitation to take me on, wasn't it? Yes. And and he quite often had the living daylights beaten out of him. <laughs> yes. Those are the two, two aha songs I know. Yes. <laughs> I think that's, that might be something that we require our listeners to help us with. Andy Hinchcliffe as 1980s mm. popular hit Oh, that's songs. good, actually. Yeah, I like that. Construct a sentence which involves both Andy Hinchcliffe and a 1980s pop song. That's, that's, that's a good call right there. Did you ever have China in your hand? Um, I played in China but I didn't play that well that I had the 66,000 crowd in the palm of my hand. So sadly, sadly no. Even when, though we beat them. When did you play in China? Uh, we went to visit the wall. When we went to visit the wall and just played cards and stayed on the coach because it was basically a wall. And I was 17. We went all the way to China, beat most teams, and lost to Brazil in the final 2-1. Devastating. With who? England. The national team, the under... England tends to be the national team. Yeah. Don't think there's a club side called England, is there? Not that I know no, of. No, well, yeah, maybe we can form No, one. not true. What? The New England Revolution. There you go. Yeah, but they have New and Revolution in their name, don't they? Which it's is certainly involved, slightly yeah. off-putting. Are they not shortened, you know, in the informal sense to just England? No, I don't think they are. I think no, because that historically would be very offensive for those who are supporters of the New England Revolution. Do you think they do, both I'd, in the 18th century and indeed now? I'd like to know whether the New England Revolution take any of the chants from the England national football team and Again, adopt them. Historically, I'd imagine that that would be something that they would very much not do. New England till I die. The New England yeah, Re exactly. Revolution. <laughs> Revolution. <laughs> You've got to add in extra syllables if you're doing any England chants. So let us know, setpiecemenu at gmail.com or tweet us on at setpiecemenu. Andy Hinchcliffe involved in a sentence which also involves a 1980s hit song. And if it's a Springsteen song... Double points. This is Set Piece Benny, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Rory Smith. Here. Stephen Wyeth. Present. And Andy Hinchcliffe. Present. But only because Portugal isn't on the list of quarantine-free countries to which English people will be able to travel at the end of the week. Damn! The food is real. It was homemade, seeded, sourdough bread, homemade by Katie, with bread smoked salmon. Bread maker. 
smoked salmon, poached eggs and spinach. You're just trying to outdo my jumbo fish finger sandwich, aren't you? I can see what you're playing at here, Wyeth. Do you know what? I had thought to really give it a sense of occasion that we were back together and in honour of your lockdown diet that I would do Herter hot dogs for lunch. But we had those yesterday because we were eating with children. So I decided (laughs) I couldn't have them on back-to-back dates. Um, So the food is real and the football is very much real as well. Chinch, do you know what we're talking about today? Um, I don't, but I'm sure it's going to be such a hot topic that our our listeners will be very, very interested in whatever it is. That's absolutely right. To describe it thus is correct. We are talking about professionalism, which is something clearly Chinch showed prior to answering that question. What does it mean? What do we expect of professional footballers? What do they expect of themselves? And was it different back in the day? Something we'll be able to find out from our back-in-the-day correspondent, Mr Andy Hinchcliffe. You can get in touch the podcast setpiecemenu at gmail.com you can find us on twitter and facebook of course thank you to all those who have subscribed to our youtube channel and give us a five star rating on itunes as well that request by the way remains open pretty much forever i I promise not to bang on about it every single week but thank you in advance Uh, let's check in shall we on our listener who has been sending us a travel log from his journey through the spm back catalog his name is ewan haig he has reached spm 119 when we discussed football on television. Dear Andy, Rory, Stephen, Hugh, I hope that you are all doing well. I am still 70 episodes behind. I thought that I would entertain you with some memories of watching football on TV in Syracuse, New York, which is halfway to Buffalo, he says, in the mid-1990s. In those days, there was a website, one of the first, he says, called Soccer on US TV. Every week, we'd look it up and would list the names of the satellites and the satellite channel that the game was on. We'd print out the list, drive to a nearby bar and present that list to the bar staff, typically around 2 p.m., Uh, due to the time difference, and ask if they could get certain games from certain satellite feeds. Some highlights from these adventures I include within. Number one, being seated at a table with a group of increasingly animated African, South American and European friends trying to watch Nigeria 4, Brazil 3 in the 1996 Olympic semi-final on the bar's tiniest television while baseball is on every other channel and the rest of the patrons are oblivious to the drama unfolding in our little corner of the world. Number two, about 30 of us turned up to watch Italy against England in a crucial 1997 World Cup qualifier, which oh, yeah. I will add myself, did, did not include that? Andy Hinchcliffe, even no. though he travelled to Italy for the game. Yeah, I was, I, I was only not involved because I was injured. I was good enough, but I was injured. Uh, that's when Glenn Hoddle showed you on the right foot, wasn't yes, it? Yes, that's what. Yeah, and that lasted mm, about twenty minutes. <laughs> Uh, Ewan continues the guy behind the bar fiddled with the satellite receiver looking for a team in blue versus a team in white and offered us games with Finland Iceland Greece and others on the basis they all looked the same and we'd asked for a soccer match we never saw a minute of Italy against England and finally three Juventus against Borussia Dortmund 1997 Champions League final the bar staff turned off the game for 15 minutes midway through the second half to hold a press conference attended by approximately one local journalist to announce an upcoming local area women's boxing bout Uh, <laughs> that's from Ewan love the show he says still looking forward to episode 100 and then this from Ewan arrived shortly after from as he describes it somewhere in the SPM 120s dear four gentlemen of Didsbury and environs the return of the Premier League has sent me spinning into some sort of SPM time walk existential crisis ex- exacerbated by the fact that in my SPM time zone it's roughly April 2019 and the COVID-19 pandemic hasn't struck yet I can't help but wonder if the podcast is still being recorded has Chinch been with you all the time or is he quarantined in Portugal if Chinch is not in Portugal how is Joao doing at the gym if Chinch is not at <laughs> Joao's gym is Joao's gym still in business is Hugh with you or is he quarantined in the Maldives or Seychelles or wherever he's been off to on holiday Wait, how are you all coping without regular in? 
infusions of Croatian pralines or has Hugh's wife Gemma been quarantined in Croatia for three months and been posting you boxes of pralines regularly? How is Hector? Is Stephen still reading these emails? Hang on, if there's no podcast, why am I still writing? To setpiecemenu at gmail.com in an increasingly quixotic quest to gain Buffalo status. Should I still regale you with my soccer stories? Am I delusional? What does it all mean? If you are reading this, I hope that you and your families are well. If you are not reading this, that's okay too. Neither of us will ever know. Best wishes, Ewan. Keep going, Ewan. Keep going. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? We, we know the answers to all of Ewan's questions. And they will all become abundantly clear to him after we've had that one episode where we kind of made light of the coronavirus <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> with, with, with disclaimers attached. With disclaimers. We, I think we, we acknowledge that we didn't know how it was going to go. Yes, yeah, so and we yeah. might all look silly. Yeah. And then we did all look silly. Yeah. An email from Andrew Everett is entitled Desire, so that he uh, managed to actually get the U2 joke that I did last week, which is extended and very unnecessary. Um, good afternoon. A question says Andrew for Andy slash chinch slash chunch. If I may. No, 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 no. Stop the chunch right there. We're not having that. No. Two, one slash is enough. I'm not having two slashes. <laughs> unless I've had a lot to drink. Have people picked up the chunch and run with it? No, they haven't, Stephen. No, they haven't picked up that, uh, that baton and ran with it. That's going to stop right here, right now. The chunch back of Notre Dame. <laughs> stop it. <laughs> As discussed in SPM 185, says Andrew, both teammates and to some extent the spectators can see that when a player's effort or desire drops below a a certain threshold, I was pondering upon whether a sudden uplift in player effort actually has the desired effect on overall team performance. In the past, we've witnessed games where players such as Beckham, Gerard or Rooney would decide unilaterally to attempt to take ownership of a game, resulting in them visibly applying extra effort, charging around the pitch and appearing in positions one wouldn't expect them to be in. Rooney in particular would often be seen out of position, desperately trying to get the ball. Typically, they'd be lauded by spectators and the media for such performances, but I always wondered from a team perspective if this sort of behaviour, in fact, has a detrimental effect in disrupting the team's plan or system and ultimately creates confusion for those other players. Thank you from Andrew Everett in Southampton. Well, you have to remember, the names that you've mentioned are very, very good players who maybe have the right to go walk about into different positions. But normally, like myself, we're not good enough and certainly wouldn't take it upon ourselves to say, you know, I'm going to pop off on the right wing to have a big influence on this game. Yeah, you can't really I, feel... f- I found it hard enough playing my position, genuinely. So I would never, ever, because the team framework is this... Are coaches really happy when players go and do that and go wandering about? They're not really meant to, but they're that, and they might produce something, and the coaches might say, "Yeah, I'm glad he did that," and I told him to do it when clearly they probably didn't. Yeah, you never really saw like, I don't know, Andy Sinton decide that actually, do you know what? I'm going to go and dole for a bit now. Just <laughs> I'm going to play centre half for 20 minutes. The, do you remember the Beckham game against Greece? I think is a really interesting example of it. Does that was? Did you play in that? No, it was in 2001. No, you, you're probably getting confused because you tend to think all great England performances <laughs> you were there. would, would, be, would involve you, me. Were you, still no. in, were you still in, in international What attention? year was it? What year 2001. Was Absolutely. I retired. No, you hadn't. You retired in 2002. Well, yeah, but it start, my retirement started in 2001. It was officially it about six months to get to the end. <laughs> you, t- you took a long run-up to retirement. I did, true. yes, yes. 19- I worked out. I worked myself down. I eased myself onwards. out of the game. Yeah, <laughs> like, like how Alan Pardew's contract with Newcastle yeah. United has just come to an end. <laughs> Chinch was technically still a professional footballer. But that Beckham game was presented as like a... Like very, like it was a very Royal of the Rovers, like heroic that, English performance. Is that his ego thinking? I'm, or is is it all about football? And well, doing, I, is it about I want to be the star? To yeah. be the star, if I do this and it comes off, is uh, it ego or is it is it the right thing on the pitch? It's ego, do? I think. And I I I've spoken to at least a couple of managers who sort of cited that game as, a, as an example of why you shouldn't allow 
why you need like a tactical framework to keep players in check because otherwise Beckham delivered. I mean, we should remember England drew two all with Greece. It wasn't some great triumph, but and Beckham scored the equalising free kick in the 93rd minute or whatever, and it was this great moment. And they went to the World Cup and got knocked out by Brazil. But um, to, to a manager, I think it was a bit like, well, what are you doing? You're kind of ruining everything. You're making it much harder for every other player and to And how play. many times does it actually come Work. off? Yeah, exactly. You only yeah. notice these things when it oh, he dropped in there and he did this, delivered a great ball in and they won. That doesn't happen. People do that. Certain people maybe do it and it doesn't come off. So it's a bit really schoolyard, isn't it? It's a bit, I mean, that's, that's kind of why you have systems and formations and all that, all that stuff is, is to keep that kind of desire to, to show your passion through just running around like a headless chicken in check. Yeah, we're saying discipline is basically a virtue of those who know their place and the more flamboyant are the, the ones that are going to go walk about and I believe think e- the rules don't apply. But even then, I think they have to be disciplined. I think to, to be a even to be a, to, well, to be a, re- a genuinely top player, you do have to be disciplined. You have to be yeah. aware of what, you, what you're meant to be doing and try to do that and rather I'm, than what you think you might want to do. And I'm not sure I put Rooney in the ego category of maybe Beckham. To me, when Rain- Wayne Rooney plays and seeing him play for Derby at the moment, I do tend to think, and he does go walk about, but he's trying, really trying to influence the game. Yeah. He's not trying to say, look at me, aren't I great? I'm having the most touches and I want to play. Look at this brilliant forward pass. He's trying to affect the game, I feel, in the right way when he does it. I'm not so sure when maybe other people do it. Yeah. Uh, one of the most well-worn cliches of, uh, of a, a career like Wayne Rooney's when he was actually a striker was, he's, he's too deep, he can't affect the game, he needs to be in between the sticks in the box and things like that while well, he was yeah, trying to affect the game in, in a way that hopefully uh, helped his team. Art McGalian has got in touch from Minneapolis again. It's one of the many emails we've received about crowd noise. He says this, like the four of you, I've been fascinated by the fake crowd noise piped into the Premier League broadcasts. For the record, I like it, says Art. At around the 60-minute mark of the Sheffield United-Spurs match, a Sheffield United shot hit the side netting. It seemed quite obviously not a goal. The commentator's voice, and the co-commentator didn't say anything, uh, according to Art, of any note. The commentator's (laughs) voice didn't betray an inkling of a goal, but the net did billow a bit. Whoever was controlling the crowd noise thought it was worth a momentarily excited reaction from the crowd, in inverted commas, that quickly devolved into disappointment. I can't help wondering if he slash she was honestly fooled by the deceptive video or if there was an ironic attempt to troll the usual gullibility of soccer crowds. That's from Art. And we should say the co-commentator with Art watching would have been the world feed and not the excellent Sky Sports commentary from Andy Hinchcliffe. Yeah, and you, I think we talked about it. There is somebody trying to time it and press certain buttons for certain cra- crowd reactions. But what you wouldn't want to do, what happens if it had crept in and you thought we set the side netting I won't do anything oh and it's too late when you press the hooray we scored so maybe they just thought I'll stick my finger on the button oh it's at the side it's not the end of the world but it, it is a bit it is a bit weird when they, that happens they are going to be trigger happy doing that job because yeah. you've got to be ready to go and you know, a bit like typo sending an email to your boss you know every so often your finger's going to slip onto the wrong button at the wrong time does that happen to you Steve no. occasionally maybe yeah, yeah when well, you're you talking accident- about accident- boiled accident- duck accidentally <laughs> accidentally sign off with the word d- <laughs> his name in my defence was Richard Head <laughs> uh, coincidentally bearing in mind that was from a guy called Art it is developing into a bit of an art isn't it getting that right and you can hear the good ones compared to the bad ones and I rather enjoy in a game that I'm not perhaps emotionally invested in I tend to wander and listen to the crowd noise on those occasions and think how good is this one and so sometimes they are very very good I, I have a suggestion for people who are yet to make, make up their minds so there'll be some people who love the crowd noise there'll be some people who hate it but quite like watching it with, with, with no with no noise but just the commentary do they like to hear the thunk and the thwack I, in g- games that I care about I want no crowd games that I'm only passingly interested in I want crowd the way to watch football in the current moment without noticing there's no fans there, is to watch it on mute. 
Does it, b- because of Ed, I quite often watch football on mute. Does I, I don't necessarily the TV might be on and he's playing and I, so I can't really pay attention to it, or I'm trying to hide. I've got it on my laptop. I'm trying to hide the fact I'm watching it, so it's behind the sofa. If it's on mute, you don't notice any of it. Does you just you you know it's on mute? So it it, it, it that's the most. I used to watch quite a lot of football on mute for the same reason. So that's the way that I've, I found it feels most normal if you just watch it on mute. And I, I mentioned about, as a broadcaster, having the crowd noise pipe through and making my job easier. Apparently, has anyone else around this table maybe had a, a change of heart in terms of whether crowd noise for a broadcaster is a good thing, Steve? I've apologised in person about this. I don't feel there's but any But financially you so haven't apologised. Fin- how, how would he what? make it up to you financially? You want £50, I think, would probably cover it. You want me yes. to pay you yes. for the truck, the Sky Truck, providing you with a service? No, basically, I told you what you could have. And you came over. You, you didn't hug me. You stayed two metres away. But I, I could sense the, the appreciation coming off you like a stench. And you, you knew. You said, thanks, Chinch. Thank you, Chinch. God bless you, Chinch, for telling me that I can have crowd noise because it made me it made me better than I actually am. Stephen, thank you in an email. Just remember to sign off with a dickhead. <laughs> um, this is an email from Hamal Shah. Hello, all of you. Firstly, I wanted to thank you for your pods during football lockdown. Seppi's Many was the only football-based pod I was really interested in listening to and the fact that I was not commuting, I had to heavily prioritise. I only recently became a listener about five months ago. Now it is my favourite pod. Hamal, you are rocking these these. <laughs> first two paragraphs of this email. I think we've come out of the coronavirus pandemic quite well. He knows we don't send out t-shirts or anything, or mugs. He's not getting a prize for this. If you're not getting 50 quid for what you you provided, Steve, nobody is getting just for basic flattery and sycophancy. I don't normally correspond with podcasts, he says, or indeed on social media, or even praise them when they are doing fine work, but I have an ulterior motive for emailing you guys. For some reason, I have been blocked by Rory on Twitter. This probably happened a couple of years ago. I am at a loss as to why he would have blocked me. As previously mentioned, I rarely communicate on social media, or if I do, it is never controversial or abusive. And maybe because I have been blocked by Rory, I found out about SPM quite so late. Anyways, if Rory is so kind and feels that he has it in him to unblock me, my handle is at Humdul, H-U-M-D-U-L. If not... It will remain quite annoying where people mention a fine tweet by Rory and I can't view it or cannot follow a thread because Rory is involved in it. Regards from Hamal. Let's call this the Ryan Barbel problem, shall we, Rory? Are you unblocking him now? Yeah, I'll unblock him now. (laughs) Did uh, did Ryan Barbel do you the same courtesy of immediately unblocking you? He did not. So why did you block this fine gentleman? I don't know. You do know. I don't. To be honest, I don't have that many many people blocked. Exactly. um, So you should know. You should remember each and every one of them. Let's just update on the Ryan Babble. I have been checking whether Ryan Babbles and block me every day. Uh, if people haven't yet uh, read uh, uh, Rory's fine piece about Ryan Babble, which was in the column this week, so it's freely available to all those who subscribe. Still blocked. <laughs> Still blocked. Still blocked. Ryan, come on. He was really nice. I'll no, tell you what, Hamal, if you can get unblocked by Rory when Rory gets unblocked by Ryan Babble. No, I've, un- I've unblocked Hamal. Oh, you've already done the, um, All people have to do is write a nice email to, to this podcast and I will unblock <laughs> them. I very, rarely, I very rarely block anyone for abuse because... What is water off a, off a duck's back, Chinch? I'm just used to getting enough of it at home. The um, <laughs> the it tends to be when someone says something that I consider so kind of one-eyed about something that I can tell that th- their presence in the future might annoy me. But do you know what? Sometimes I do it wrong, and sometimes it's perfectly reasonable people, and I just take it take it the wrong way, and and I regret it. So I apologise to to that one person who that, that applies to everybody else stand, stand, by, stand by ground to be honest <laughs> now as has become increasingly obvious to you all if one of our tremendous listeners offers up an opportunity for us to do a little less work we are likely to take it with both hands so this email serves as not only correspondence but also our topic preamble it comes from Laura why just Laura that will become clear 
Dear Hugh et al, greetings from central Brooklyn. I wanted to reiterate all the comments that have been left on previous podcasts and more eloquently by fellow listeners to thank you for the wonderful podcast you put out. Laura, well done. I know that you do it for your own self-interest in the hellscape that is the media business and not for my benefit, but I'm grateful nonetheless to listen to such an intelligent, thoughtful, knowledgeable and funny group every week. In the true spirit of Rory, I also frequently recapitulate opinions and quips from the four of you and pass them off as my own, for which I'm also very grateful. Also in the true spirit of Rory, I apologise for the verbosity of this message. I live, says uh, Laura, in one of the worst-hit areas of the worst-hit city of one of the worst-hit countries since the pandemic broke out. While I'm lucky to have a job and a healthy family, like every New Yorker, I have experienced the deaths of friends and acquaintances, the disruption of virtually every aspect of my life, and the omnipresent spectre of death. The pod has been indescribably helpful in getting me out of the house on walks and distracting me from what we euphemistically describe as all this. As a relatively new listener to the pod, it's been a joy to notice the recurrence of random little foibles in the back catalogue. Hugh's admirable, she says with an exclamation mark, so probably sarcastically, fixation <laughs> on accurate player name pronunciation. Chinch's fondness for the word nouse. Rory showing off his knowledge of precisely where in Yorkshire Gareth Southgate lives <laughs> and Steve's opinions on the relative merits of various motorways through Manchester, <laughs> comma, etc. She said she could have made that about any part of the country. Having placated Hugh with my greeting and given a nod to the rest of the pod's participants, I now want to do something that absolutely nobody asked for. Praise Rory. No. I am terribly proud that Rory's consistently brilliant work is published in my hometown paper. That's more like it. I grew up playing soccer, but due to a variety of boring factors, only started following the sport outside of international tournaments at the beginning of last season. Regrettably, she says, in brackets, my weird crush on Eric Dyer during the 2018 World Cup may have played something of a role in that transition. He's a sexy man. It was Rory's coverage of the Copa Libertadores in late 2018 that made me fully appreciate my ignorance of both the breadth and the history of worldwide soccer. And it's only through his writing and later through the pod that I've started to fill in those holes of my knowledge. I also appreciate, she says, that Rory agrees with me that Juan Foyth is the second coming of Gerard Piquet. I don't, I don't know if I've ever said that. <laughs> she, she's confusing you with Tarek again. I don't know if I'm, if I'm on record as saying that, but, but if, if, you know, if he gets me praise, I'll think it. My encomium <laughs> to Rory completed. She has an excellent vocabulary, does Laura. I'd like to pose a question for you all. One about professionalism. And here we move on to our subject today. As a Spurs fan, I've read rather too much of the current Tottenham Twitter discourse, trademark, she says, around Tonga Ndombele and Jose Mourinho possibly feuding. Ndombele perhaps not training hard enough. Mourinho perhaps hanging him out to dry in front of the press before the lockdown and freezing him out of the squad subsequently, and so on. Theirs is obviously not a normal line of work in terms of boss-employee relationships. In fact, I'm not sure Mourinho even is Ndombele's boss. While they earn similar salaries and are both signed to long-term contracts, Mourinho is in a position of authority, yes, but only Ndombele has sell-on value to Daniel Levy, who probably can't afford to allow Mourinho to do to Ndombele what he did to the likes of Salah and De Bruyne. She then refers us to a tweet, slotting Ndombele into the off by Jose select 11 <laughs> uh, we shall retweet it I imagine and perhaps uh, later on in the show when we get a bit of time we'll go through it for you still continues Laura I feel pretty confident in saying that the whole thing is stupid and neither of them has behaved perfectly the saga has reminded me of other recent bits of bad behaviour among professional footballers players including Virgil van Dijk refusing to train to force a transfer Raheem Sterling taking a swing at Joe Gomez on England duty spectacularly dumb lockdown violations and any number of bits of violence on the pitch I don't have any adversaries at my job but even if I did I don't think I'd be able to get away with grabbing anyone by the throat a la Matteo Guendouzi then there are the players of the world who are lauded for their professionalism the workhorses who 
you eat well and don't drink during the season, train hard and don't cause a fuss, all of which would seem to be the bare minimum of a good professional. There are also, obviously, racist elements in the coverage of Ndombele's perceived laziness, a charge that seems most often to be levelled at black players. By contrast, the league's number one most vaunted, dedicated professional is a white and English player, James Milner. Indeed, most of the journeyman types praised for their longevity and dedication tend to be white as well. Hmm. Being a good professional also necessarily involves a lack of privacy. Players' medical information is revealed in team news every week, which is how I know that Eric Dyer has had both appendicitis and tonsillitis. I wouldn't want to share my surgical history with my co-workers, but he has to share his with the whole world and maybe just strengthen that bond between you and him, Laura. In short, what do we mean when we talk about professionalism in a football context? Do we hold players to excessively low standards, working hard in training and not decking their opponents, for example? Do we hold them to ex excessively high standards, expecting players to give 110% every second of every day, something that we ourselves don't do at our own jobs? What about managers? Chinch has also discussed how players are now held to higher standards of professionalism, at least in terms of diet and fitness, than they were during his playing days. How much more professional can we expect players to become in the future? In 10 years' time, will we be locking the players up in their training grounds and forcing them to subsume their entire lives to their clubs? Thank you, says Laura, for reading this far. I hope you and your families all stay well and please keep up the magnificent work. That is from Laura. P.S. If for some inexplicable reason you do end up reading this on the pod, please omit my surname I'm not sure I want my weird crush on Eric Dyer to be in the public record so Laura's basically done my job for me ask an overarching question with several sub questions thereafter to provide depth and context so a reminder what do we mean when we talk about professionalism in a football context do we hold players to excessively low or high standards and what about managers too I thank you for that and now having done less work than normal I yield to the floor well I think professionalism in any context is what's happening right now which is that we're recording outside in steve's garden because of social distancing it's raining so we are holding an umbrella i'm holding an umbrella under which hugh is crouching so that his laptop doesn't get wet we're protecting the equipment but not ourselves chinch you'll have noticed that chinch by the way doing nothing <laughs> no, i'm just staying out of the way because if i try and get my chin under there it's just going to knock all the computer off so the displacement would yeah, be exactly <laughs> we're hoping to ride out the st the, uh, the rain a r rain, by the way, that was not predicted on no. an app that I spent uh, money on. Really? Yes. You're paying, I, oh, I can send you an article about like, AccuWeather and stuff and how it's all a bit of a scam. bit of a scam. Yeah. £1.99's worth of scam, that's for sure. This is one of the nice things, isn't it, about uh, living and uh, working in Manchester in the summer. It's not raining anymore. I think we'll be okay. We'll be all right. Um, I, I think that's a really good point, you know, about professionalism, because we do... There's a, there's a trope about managers that appears in basically every interview with managers. Not interviews I do. Lesser people. The, um, the <laughs> lesser <laughs> managers or lesser journalists. Lesser, lesser, no. So there's there's this um there's this trope which you'll you'll hear hear or see quite frequently about how hard a manager works, and it will always be that he's the first at the training run in the morning and he's the last to leave at night. And a few years ago, I realised that what people meant by that generally is the manager will pitch up for work at half eight or maybe nine and will leave three, half three. And you think, well, so by he's incredibly hard working, you mean he does a normal day's work. That, that's literally what you mean. And if he works any harder, it's often because he doesn't want to be at home. Yes. Or the people exactly. at home don't want him there. And one, one would also assume that for the modern football manager, an awful lot of their work is done away from the training ground anyway. So the amount of time they spend there is, is kind irrelevant. Of irrelevant. And yeah. Sir Alex Ferguson famously didn't retire when he initially intended to in 2003 because his wife told him not to because she would rather him not be in the house quite so much. It's, although, I, I, yeah, that's, um, I always find that idea a little bit misogynistic. 
I d- this is this is maybe me being hyper woke. I think it's one of those things that that is trotted out quite a lot that that actually is meant to reflect badly on the woman, and I'm I'm really uncomfortable with it. That it's um, we talked about doing a feature during the pan- during the hiatus on um, on kind of how athletes were coping, not just footballers, like how athletes were coping at home when when they're you know especially in the states they're kind of on the road. Baseball teams are on the road so long, and we we talked about it a bit and decided that actually there's kind of a like a shrew element to the way that we talk about it's a di- this is a different podcast but there's like a shrew element to the way we talk about athletes partners it's a bit like yeah they don't don't like having me around do they and it's a bit like well what what that's not a healthy relationship don't boast about it like if your if your partner genuinely hates having you in the house then then there's something seriously wrong here. I, th- <laughs> like, I think the relationship read the signals <laughs> you are doomed <laughs> for failure and anybody who, do- who knows the, the relationship between Alex Ferguson and, and Dame Kathy, Kathy Ferguson yeah. will, will, will understand that that is a, a oh, strong no, 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 relationship no, no, but one that she very much yeah. is in charge and of I th- <laughs> no I think in that, well, that to be fair that's this is now getting really kind of serious but like I think that's slightly different isn't it because he was that that is the thing that a lot of wives and husbands will go through when one of them retires, and like my parents, when my my, my dad found retirement really hard, or work from home for three months in a row. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, which is a yeah. It, that that is that would have been a massive test for a lot of people during the last. In fact, that's probably been a massive test for everybody during the hiatus, the or the the lockdown. Because it's, it's not just affected football anyway. Really, but I do think we to return to the original point which I made several hours ago. <laughs> the. The, uh, we, d- we do ascribe to footballers particularly and managers a virtue of just doing their job properly like that's the, the, a lot of the stuff this stuff is pretty basic like you, a footballer's professional because he doesn't eat like loads of fatty food well yeah of course like that's like I, I, am I professional for turning like for actually going to games like is that me being incredibly professional it's just me doing my job and I think we we do make too much of kind of who is professional and the flip side of that I guess is maybe we 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 take very, very slight problems or missteps and turn them into a kind of ev- into evidence of unprofessionalism. And I think Laura's right that I would guess that applies more to black players than white players. So we will come on to uh, the Tongai um, and Dombele Jose Mourinho axis in just a moment. But I, I want to talk. Well, about that's a ve- that is a very. St- I think Mourinho at Tottenham is a very strange situation. Anyway, we can we talk about maybe. We'll no, we don't have to do it now. It. But I think that is a because that's that's obviously the club that we're talking about and the coach that we're talking about. But having covered Tottenham, a few, it seems that the relationship between Mourinho and his players seems really strange to me. I think that maybe happened at Man United to a degree as well. So, so then I don't know whether we talk about Mourinho at Tottenham is and talk about professionalism. Maybe he should be behaving differently. In my opinion, he should be behaving a, a little bit differently with his players. But maybe that's un, a slightly more unusual situation. Say Sean Dyche at Burnley, yeah. looking at Mourinho at, at Tottenham. It does seem it seems an odd an but odd would, fit. That would you not say that that Mourinho like selling his players out in public is unprofessional? It seems as though to me he wants his players to fail to basically say there I'm, I'm telling you that they're simply not good enough well why not coach them to be better that would be my argument don't just buy and sell you're not going to be able to buy a whole lot of new players you've got an international squad there and they're still performing at times really badly and it seems to me there's not he's never come out and said it but it seems to be kind of kind of a smugness there as if to say well there I, I told you I told the hierarchy they're not good enough and there you go they put in that performance but you're the coach shouldn't you be trying to improve that performance because they're not they're not poor players I was at that game, the Burnley-Tottenham game, which was one of the last in the Premier League before lockdown, when Tottenham were basically atrocious for 45 minutes and were 1-0 down, and deservedly so. And after the game, I was doing it for radio, so I was waiting in the radio interview room after the game, and there was a general ripple that started coming down because 
Jose had done, obviously done his TV interviews first and may even have then gone in to do the press conference for the written journalist before he came to us, that he had thrown Ndombele under the bus. So we were actually had that opportunity, strange sort of opportunity to think. <laughs> Literally, there he is. Yeah. He's under the bus. You all rushed out to the car park. <laughs> he might as well have done. We kind of prepared, were able to prepare ourselves for thinking back to the first half of that game. And well, they were all terrible, weren't they? Was it in his was it his fault particularly that Tottenham were out of sorts and were behind that were being steamrolled by Burnley? Yeah, you would say there'd been holes in the Tottenham midfield, but it seemed odd that you would single out one player in particular, and it just felt to us that he'd made a double change. I think Oliver Skip was the other player to come off at half-time, as I recall. He'd made a double change at the break, reversed or reverted to the team that had pretty much finished their previous game. That seemed like an obvious thing to do, and they were a lot better in the second half. It, it just felt entirely unnecessary, regardless of who the player was. But it, it seemed as though, because he'd taken two players off at half-time, and one of them was more senior than the other, that he had chosen to admonish the senior player in front of the TV cameras. You wonder with Jose generally whether, and this has been the theme of his last few years really, is um, is whether he's able... He he, Jose functions really well, I think, when he's got like grizzled veterans with a point to prove and he can be their, kind of, their general and it becomes a very kind of macho, kind of testosterone-y environment that I don't personally think, I might be wrong, I don't think that really flies with, with younger players now and by younger, probably anyone, anyone under the age of 30 who didn't grow up in an in academy environment like that. I think they need more carrot than stick most of the time and that, that, that to be honest, is probably a good thing. It's certainly much more psychologically healthy. I, I wonder whether Jose, Jose, needs, Jose himself, I think, needs an enemy to, to kind of work against, like he defines himself against these, these people, whether it's another manager or, or whether it's another team or whether it's UEFA. And increasingly over the last few years, you, you wonder whether he's looking for that enemy within and that it's kind of, right, he, I'm going to make him the person that I'm railing against, and in this case it's, it's Ndombele, and that kind of gives Jose like, some weird like, energy to kind of prove his point. But he's, it's, a, it's a theme with Ndombele. He's, he's clearly decided he, he is not... He's either trying to break him so he can build him up again, which, again, you, can, you could maybe say is unprofessional. Why would you do that? Or he's decided I'm going to make an example of you so that everybody else knows that w- what I expect from them, that I want, these, I want you to be my warriors. And the thing with Mourinho is he's in a situation of his own creation, incidentally, where the, the long-term success of managers, whether, they're with, whether that's at one club or through changing clubs, is that either the message needs recycling or the players do. And I guess we know Jose Mourinho so well and those in the game will know him even better that the message is already crystal clear before he comes into a new dressing room. So for those Tottenham players, they probably already feel like they've heard what Jose Mourinho has got to say, which makes this tactic all the more extraordinary. And you have to be very careful because I think maybe Mourinho five to ten years ago, if he'd done this with a certain player, the rest of the players in that dressing room would have sided with him. But now mm. the way that dressing rooms are structured, players are very, very close to each other, more than maybe the coach. And maybe with the way Mourinho's gone over the last few years, he seems to have distanced himself from the squad. And maybe he just doesn't, again, the standard of the player that he's working with is not what it was before. And maybe he's finding it harder to kind of get his point across and the performances aren't coming, the wins aren't coming. He's not looking good. But if you pick on a player, 
you might find other players in the dressing room rally around the player rather than say, well, this is Jose Mourinho. He must be right. We'll all be better because we don't want to be treated like Undombele. So you've got to be very careful. Again, do, is he, does he really fully understand the modern dressing room? Because it's very different than the successful dressing rooms had in the past. The, the authority structure, something that Laura mentioned in her email, Undombele is of more value in terms of pounds to the club than Jose Mourinho. Mourinho doesn't have any resale value. And Dombele, yes, he cost a lot of money. We saw that with Pogba and Mourinho at Man United, wasn't it? So, yeah. so, yeah. Who, so who wins? There's an argument that Paul Pogba won that, although probably both going <laughs> that at that point on the card. So what about the authority structure? Is, is, is that, is, Mourinho is attempting to be professional in his mind by getting, eventually, I would imagine, results based on the way that he is treating Tongo and Dembele. The thing is, I think, I think it's kind of offset by... Um, the fact that, yes, Ndombele's dropped more resale value, but I think he's an asset that, that's much harder to dispose of than Mourinho. And that maybe balances that out, that, that ultimately, yes, you get more money for selling Tondroy Ndombele, and that's fine, but it's, it's much easier if there's problems to just say, right, we're going to sack the manager. So they, they're, kind of, they're positions of equal weakness, almost, that you can... You can look at the player and say, well, he's, he's the one who we can sell. But equally, if you've got a real problem with the team, it's the manager you get rid of. Are the scales in th- that situation, though, more in favour of Jose Mourinho currently, but that would change in 12 or 18 months' time in terms of the length of Ndombele's yeah. contract? Because at the moment, it is more important for Tottenham that Jose Mourinho is working productively for them. Yeah. They can worry about the value of Ndombele when he's midway through his contract or coming towards the final year of his contract because that's when his value to the club is magnified in terms of if you're thinking about reselling him or what to do about a next contract so Mourinho is he tactically picking on a player who has been signed at relatively great expense has come with a biggish reputation and has a relatively long-term contract so that's a, a can that can be kicked down the road hasn't Dombele deserved in inverted commas, the criticism that has come his way. Whether Mourinho's right in terms of his professionalism about doing what he's doing, does Mourinho have a point? Has, has Ndombele been poor in his performances? Not that every coach would, would handle it like this. I'm sure if there were a problem, coaches would do it behind closed doors and do it very personally and the press would never know anything about it. So whether Mourinho's right or wrong in, in handling it in this way, does Ndombele have a leg to stand on and say, well, actually, I'm performing really well, yet you're picking on me. If you're not performing well, then maybe you can say, well, I'm saying all this because it's actually true, but whether you should be saying it in kind of the, the public sphere is, a, is is the bigger question. So are you saying, Chinch, that there needs to be a question also about the the, the level of professionalism that Tonga and Ndombele is showing? Because if he is not reaching the standards that are required of him mm-hmm. just generally, but also from his manager, is that the reason why his manager is, is reacting in the way, whether you think it's professional or well, not? Well, this, this is why it's such a, maybe a... Of all the coaches to, to talk about and clubs to talk about, Mourinho at Tottenham is maybe different than how this would be handled anywhere else because players do have dips in form. They may have problems at home and they can't then perform out on the pitch. But I guarantee you 90% of coaches wouldn't handle it in this way, wouldn't publicly hang people out to trust. So you've got to wonder why he's doing it. He might be right and say, yeah, his performances have dipped. He isn't playing well enough. But you would normally put that right in private and on the training ground. You would never. So for what reason are you actually hanging him out? Again, what it does to the dressing room, what it does to the club, it doesn't set a good precedent. And I think maybe five, ten years ago, Mourinho would have got away with this and people would have said, if he says it, doesn't matter whether it's right or wrong, we have to deal with this. Now I'm not so sure. I don't think it's going down particularly well with the Tottenham dressing room, 
and maybe the wider football would look at this and say, why, why would you do that to someone like that? Why would you, why would you treat someone like that? But also it's the, it's the offences that Ndombele is accused of, isn't it? That, I think that's what Laura's getting at. Is, is, so there's, certain players do get a reputation for kind of being late to training occasionally. Maybe they're, and I don't know, I don't know how, how, how much this is true of Ndombele, maybe being slightly overweight when they're not meant to be, maybe taking a little bit longer to come back from injury than they're supposed to be, maybe not training as hard as, as the manager feels that they ought to be. And that, that is what we mean by professionalism, is kind of... And maybe Mourinho has tried all the tactics of saying, Possibly. look, you, you've got to stop doing that. Yeah. That needs to change privately. And it's got to a point where it isn't changing. And maybe he has felt, look, the only way maybe to have an impact on him is to make this public and try and embarrass him to such a degree that he will knuckle down. So we don't know maybe, in, in fairness to Mourinho, what he's done in private. He might have worked very hard to try and change yeah. the player, if that's the problem that exists. And maybe it's got to a point where I, the only thing I can do now is embarrass him publicly. But Yeah, although it's very quick... I would say it, it, he he reached that point. It's the it's anchorman thing. This escalated quickly. Yeah, yeah, and it's M- Mourinho's only been kind of actively in charge of Tottenham for about five months, and he's already. I mean, it, the Ndombele thing was, as, as Steve says, was before the hiatus, and then he was one of the players that he was that Mourinho trained with on on the park in London, wasn't he? So you sort of think, well, maybe he has, maybe he's tried a lot with with Mourinho. There is there is this whole theme that that everything about his career is now accelerating. So he's now already in his... He's, he's having Jose Mourinho's third season in his fifth month at Tottenham. And, and that, that is, is getting to the stage now where it's beyond kind of a media narrative and more a kind of undeniable fact. But I, d- I don't know. I'm, I'm a little bit uneasy about the things that are, are thrown at players. And I, again, I think this happens more with black players than white players that are judged to be unprofessional. So if you're not... I don't know, you, you, you're the one who was a player, Chinge. And some player. And some pl- you, you, you were certainly some player. You were a player the, sometimes. The, um, the, um, Andy Hinchliffe, some player. <laughs> <laughs> it's all the emphasis of the word. Um, the uh, Andy Hinchliffe, comma, some player. <laughs> some player or just some player. Yeah. It's just, yeah. The, um, what, what would you have thought, w- what, when you were playing, made a teammate really professional to you? It... Like I said, we had players at, uh, at Sheffield Wednesday, Paolo Di Canio, Benny Carboni, Wood. And again, I don't know whether they're doing it because they were our star players or what it, they were doing it because of the personalities that they were. That They would arrive a little bit late for training. When everyone started to do the, the first warm-up run, they'd kind of join it late. But they were so influential for us as a team. And maybe, again, that's maybe why they did it. They knew they are always going to be in the team. They knew that they could win games for us. But again, you shouldn't throw your weight around and, and behave like that. I wouldn't behave like that. And 90% of the squad... We're on t- even early. We'd, we'd arrive way before we needed to do. T- to me, that's that's being prof- arriving on time for work, whether mm. you're a footballer or not. That's that's my personality anyway. Whatever job I do in in this business, I'm a, a game four hours before because that's my I feel it's my duty, my obligation. That's me, and that is I would say 99% of poly players. Um, so people that do arrive for training w- would be more probably annoying to me over time. I remember Gilles de Builder at Sheffield Wednesday used to train without tying up his laces. And to me, I'm thinking, what, that to me is if you're trying you're, you're to be different. Over. Well, but it, it didn't seem to fall over. But again, it just, it's just kind of, a, well, yeah, when it comes to a match day, you can maybe do this in training and have a bit of fun and not take it that seriously by not taking, when it comes to a match day, can we rely on you mm. to do what we need? Because we know we can rely on each other, but can we rely on you? And again, I think it's just, just these little things, more than maybe big incidents, nightclub incidents or, you know, drinking and all this type of stuff. It's actually those little things that you see day after day after day which become so annoying because the normal 
professional inverted commas wouldn't you know why wouldn't you tie your boots up mm. as you, it just looks so again just as if you can't be bothered I'm better than this and again that sends a message to the rest of the dressing room and certainly Sheffield Wednesday with some of the characters we had there that does not go down particularly well because we've got some really proper professionals who, who want to be part of a, a successful team and having people like that around you but again we didn't the trouble is we didn't probably say anything we should have been stronger as a group of players to say by the way sort that out because if the coach isn't saying anything to you because one reason or another we as players probably should have should have dealt with that as well because it, it, it doesn't look good did you ever test bob the builder with uh, bearing money couldn't do his laces mm. whether he could read an analog clock or oh yeah wrap his sandwiches in cling film just, yeah. just just to be abundantly clear <laughs> yeah I can tie shoelaces. <laughs> but I have told you the story about Andy, Andy Booth, because obviously Shield the Builder, we, we nicknamed him Bob. And it, it took Andy Booth a good season and a half to understand why. He said, he's called Gilles. No, but Bob. Yeah, Gilles. No, Bob the Builder, right? But he's called Gilles. Oh, for goodness sake. So it did take 18 months, but he got there in the end. He had to, he had to show him the programme before so he realised what was going on. Apart from, I mean, so I think in, in that sense, professionalism in football isn't really different, different to professionalism anywhere else. It's turning up for work on time. It's being presentable. And in football, that's well, tying well, your shoelaces. If, you, if you're able to. Obviously. If you're able to. But that, that, that's interesting that you would describe players in that way. Having just had the conversation about Ndombele and about how we frame black players often mm. wrongly about the cliches to, to, to describe uh, them as lazy, you've described players turning up late, not doing their shoelaces up. They're all white. Mm -hmm. They are, however, non-British. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they are described, generally speaking, because of things like this, facets to their personality, as as mavericks or, or mercurial. Mm. They, they don't get the lazy tag, isn't it? So that, that does come yeah. back to the point that even when they do display similar traits, they are treated and, and again, described. And again, the things that I was saying, I, they're, they're just examples off the top of my head. There will be lots of different examples over my career of, of different people. So it's nothing to do with the fact that they're foreign players or they, they may be black players. It's nothing to do with that at all. It's about being a football and what I would consider are the very basics that you should do and how you should think about how that that looks not mm. just to the coach, but on on training days to your teammates. Can they can they fully trust you? I'm not I'm not saying that that's how you would describe yeah, it. They, that I was saying that that's how they might be described. Were that story to be yeah. told to others who are but, then retelling but it. That, and this isn't this isn't something that Chinch is is, is being guilty of. I don't think. But it is in, you, you're right. It's interesting that white players who who have those kind of less professional traits, I guess, are probably thought of as being mavericks. Whereas if it's a black player, it's almost invariably that they're, they're thought of as being lazy or lacking discipline. That that does that is a there's a study that came out last week about about kind of the, the use of critical and, and praise in terms in commentary and white players are, are praised for work rate, what Laura says about James Milner. I mean, James Milner is not thought of as being a, a model professional because he's white, but he is probably more easily ascribed model professional status because he's white. There will, there will, there will be plenty of black players who are just like that and you don't necessarily hear them distrust in those terms. It shouldn't detract from what a professional James Milner is. But equally, it doesn't mean that the, the, there isn't kind of a systemic problem in, in how we talk about players of different colours. And there is, yeah, the, no question that if, if Gilles de Builder was black mm -hmm. and had those maverick traits, mm -hmm. perhaps he would have been talked of in, in... Well, to be fair, it's a bad example. I'm not sure anyone really talked about Gilles de Builder. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from to tell a story about Andy Booth. Yeah. Maybe from the outside, but certainly within the dressing room. Yeah, it's, it, that it's wouldn't matter. It'd yeah. still be, in, in our eyes, or the rest of the professionals' eyes, wrong to, it, to, to carry yeah, so on. It's lacking in professionalism yes. regardless. Yes, and that's absolutely. The point, yeah. That's yeah. the point that you would make from, the, from within the four walls of the, yeah. of the training ground. And how we describe it from without the four walls of the training ground is different. And it's really important that we, we remember that, I think, that, that just because black players are accused of being lazy doesn't mean that there aren't some lazy black players just as there are some lazy white players. So Usman Dembele at Barcelona, 
lazy is maybe not the right word, but is has got a problem with being late for training. There was one I think earlier in the season where it was two or three hours late. That is unprofessional. The it isn't. It doesn't become like it isn't racist or problematic to say, look, Dembele's attitude is not what it should be because of this, this, and this. And there is a there's a sort of like a pro- that that is now a long running problem with his career in Spain. I think. Whether whether we see those traits more easily in black players as a football culture is 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 the problem. It, it the individual case isn't always that helpful to look at the broader issue. It's about how you instinctively use language yeah. as opposed to the evidence that is presented yeah. to you, so that you don't use it necessarily just instinctively. Use it because of an yeah. ev- on an evidentiary basis. Jaden Sancho is developing a reputation for being late to training, which a lot of people ascribe to his friendship with Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang when they were together at Dortmund, but it doesn't seem to be doing him any harm in terms of his yep. burgeoning reputation and being linked with a £100 million move to the Premier yeah, League. Al- although it has, the, the, Sancho, the Sancho thing, Dortmund seems to, this season seems to have found him slightly troublesome in a way that you don't hear about, I don't know, like Raheem Sterling. Like you never hear about Raheem Sterling being late for training. I don't think Raheem Sterling's got a problem being late for training. It is an issue for Sancho. I guess it's a, maybe it's an issue for lots of young players that, that they, they find it hard initially to, regardless of colour, to kind of get used to the, the quite militaristic life of a footballer. It is very... Yeah, but surely coming through the academy system, yeah, there's so, demands yeah. on all yeah. players in terms of, of, of training times. And again, I don't know whether shoelace it's to do doing with up. shoelace <laughs> doing. I, I don't. Again, in terms of you know, we're talking about players that are obviously really the, the 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 top end of the game. So again, it might be their personalities, black or white, doesn't matter. That they are just find it hard to get anywhere on time. Or again, are they starting to use their positions? Maybe at Sheffield Wednesday, I did tend to think that maybe, you know, with Paolo and, and Benny, with with how important they were to to team our team winning games, like or maybe Gilda Builder, financially what he's earning. Maybe you think actually, you know, I can behave like this, and people are going to let me get away with it. Again, it might be in their per person, or or they're forcing the issue by behaving this way and so saying I'm different, so mm. I'm going to turn up 20 minutes late. Well. You shouldn't really be doing that because it affects us all if you do that. As Rory says, yeah, power move. But the extension of the argument that Laura's making in the email about the authority structure that Ndombele might be worth more uh, money to Spurs because of resale value, you, you, the natural extension of that is that if you are worth more in terms of how the team plays and how significant a contributor you are to that team's success, that that might mean that you have... Um, a set, a set, a different, a different view on what professional professionalism oh, no, that, means to you and your team, and that's always been true. That, that there, there has always been. There's loads and loads of cases of of the most gifted players. The rules apply differently to them. And I, there was one. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a it's a slightly unnecessarily controversial example. But if if another Liverpool player, if Martin Kelly, had racially abused an opponent during a game, Liverpool wouldn't have stood by them in the same way as they did with Luis Suarez. Not, not, not a chance. Just, just no. Wouldn't happen. But the, the if Andrew Voronin. If you're, t- if you're talking about professionalism, would those players who arrive twenty minutes late but then score two goals to win you the game, would they say that their levels of professionalism are just as high? Because actually, professionalism is not judged about your timekeeping. Professionalism for a professional footballer is judged by how much you contribute and the way that you contribute to your team's success. Well, I suppose in a way, if you're talking about the, the ninety minutes that you play for compared to the amount of time you spend training, sometimes you can't always say, "Well, the end product is worth you behaving in whatever way you want to do." The Des Walker if conundrum. You, yeah. 
Des Walker was you know completely the, the other way because he, he didn't train at all yet did he turn up on time though? Did he, he was always up? there every day he but, like, but he spent most of his time in the, in the in the <laughs> In the, the have a cup of tea and be in the physio room, or just wander around and have a, a cup of tea with the lady that made the, the tea and cakes before. We so again, he, he kind of played his part. He never didn't turn up. He was always there on time, but then just didn't go and train. But there's other reasons why probably coaches didn't want him out there training. But it's, well, it's, if you think about Ledley King, who I think for his last last few years as a player never really trained, he, he swam basically. He was, if anything, Ledley King was a professional swimmer. And for footballing reasons, it, we should say, because yeah. of the, the, the injury problems. But that his, his professionalism, I guess, was, was, was in doing whatever it took to keep his body just about functioning so he could play at the weekend. But we, we've talked a lot do. about the power of, of players and how there's huge responsibility on the players. Whether you, you talk about professionalism, is it imposed on an employee or does it, should it come from within? Do they need to be told you need to turn up on time for training? You shouldn't need to be told that no. because you've got responsibility to the club and to your, your teammates. So again, it's a lot of it, I feel, has to come from within. And if you're not like that, I would feel the pressure of, of people around you should change the way that you run your life to become more like us. Paolo Di Canio was clearly in a, a different, different class in terms of the quality of football he was. But, and we, we loved him dearly, but it was because of that eccentricity. We saw his eccentricity. And again, because of the end result, he'd win games for us. You kind of think, well, it's all right. We know it's not really all right, but it's whether those players think, well, I'm going to do this because I'm different. No one's going to stop me doing it. But maybe it is down to those individuals to say, yeah, maybe I've got to get a, a, a grip on this. Because my team, again, it is about the, the team ethic. It's a team game. It's a squad game. You do have to do more as an individual and not just wait to be fined or wait to be told. By the way, you've been late for training three times this week. You'd already know that and you have to change your ways. This can't be exclusively a football or sporting no. conundrum, though. There must be people in all walks of life who, for whom the rules don't seem to apply because they deliver in other ways. I'm sure many of our, our listeners are recognising characteristics about some of the players we're talking about in some of their, their work colleagues and there's lots of things you know currently in terms of the way that some people are treated for the ways the way that they've behaved compared to others which leaves many people flabbergasted as to how they can get away with it but they do well so if you've got a deadline to, mm. to, and to, I think you do have a deadline do you I do, yeah. do you do you think well I'm Rory Smith if I'm 20 minutes late it's not going to make any difference no or you take it it comes from you that this has to be done on time done as as well as you can do which is you know it's fairly decent what he's asking but, um, is how many times have you said stop the presses <laughs> yes none but you you take, a lot of money it comes from you to say look they they need this they're my employees so again you take that seriously you don't just say well it doesn't really matter if it's a, an hour late or something just, does should, it? should clarify don't have any employees the um the have colleagues and superiors the employers employers yes which, uh, yeah I do have employers yeah, yeah. they say no, employees no I, I know you're a big one but you don't have you don't, don't have, have minions do you what about no, 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 no. Um, no he's a dog he's he a, does he, run errands for you he though, can't he, he can't type can he he's a, he, he does fetch <laughs> remarkably well he's a, he's a minion in in a sense mm, maybe the, um, is he on the payroll no, but I think Hector I need copy fetch me a story I think that's um. He does look good in a in in a nice fedora with a little is, press. He's a pedigree chum tax write-off. <laughs> you leave my accountant out. The um accountant, your employee. No, I, I think, but I think I think what Chin says is about um about whether it's imposed on you, whether it comes from within, is is really interesting. Like, I think in any walk of life, in any job, there are certain things that you are meant to do to meet the requirements of that job. So for most of us, it's turning up turning up for work on time. Delivering whatever we're meant to deliver, meeting targets, meeting sales—you know, meeting sales targets or completing a project or whatever—you like you do your job and you you do your job in a way that 
says to your employers, I'm doing my job properly, I'm meeting, meeting your requirements, and that I think it's important that, you, that it says to your colleagues, your co-workers, mm -hmm. that you are trying. And I think where we, where we generally see players falling short of what we consider professionalism is, is in not meeting the basic requirements. So yeah, players who, are, who don't keep, keep themselves in shape, that is, that is ultimately unprofessional because the basic, one of the basic requirements of your job is that you are able, if called upon, to, um, they always used to t tell us when I worked for the Mirror that you had to wear a suit for work, and obviously, as a like 23-year-old journalist, it was like a, a suit that I'd bought from Burton. It, when I didn't, you were 16. When I was 16, I'd, like I was going going for a court appearance, I didn't <laughs> I didn't look for good. For that cousin's wedding. But they always <laughs> said, oh, you've got to wear a suit in case you get you get summoned to meet the Queen, which it turns out even in tabloid news reporting is relatively rare. <laughs> And I remember, uh, How many cub reporters at the Mirror get summoned to Buckingham no, Palace at short notice? None. <laughs> at the Daily Express, however. <laughs> yeah, every they're there constantly. No, and, it, and it, I worked out after a while. Look, I, I think I look smarter wearing something that's not a, like a shit suit, but is is you know, you know something relatively more something more casual officially, but like slightly slightly less than a suit. When do we better. get to see this? The, I, I, I no longer dress smart, Steve, don't worry. It's like the Alan Partridge slacks and blazer combo, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, yeah. You do look a lot better than to wear a suit. Of course you don't. But to the mirror, that was that was the thing. You like you had to wear a suit and tie. It doesn't it didn't, didn't really matter. And we was. are all judged most harshly by the mirror, of course. Exactly. <laughs> and um, but that that was kind of one of the basic requirements. Was you, you should look, you should look smart in inverted commas in a way that we we assume to be smart, the, the way that we believe to be smart to do your job properly. So you you, you do it. You, you you can't like. Don't turn up in a t-shirt because you think well this is what I want to wear you just that's what your employer expects so that's what you do and I think with with footballers a lot a lot of the stuff that we judge as professionalism is just basic kind of taking your job quite seriously and there is there is maybe an issue with we maybe dish that 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 praise around too easily like mm. well done you've turned up for work on time brilliant like, aren't you? Aren't you great? You should. You're clearly a, a role model for everybody. Well done. You're not massively fat. That's great. Well done. But at the same time, when when players transgress those those basic rules, I think it is. It probably is fair enough to say, look, you, this, you're not really doing what you should be doing at this stage. So that's the double-edged sword, isn't it? The double-edged sword is that, that there are very low expectations for, for a footballer's professionalism. We expect them to, we praise them for doing something that we would expect of ourselves at the very, very basic levels of professionalism. And yet, if they fall short of what we expect them to be doing in terms of their levels of professionalism, we are very quick to haul them over the coals and take them to task for it. Um, so that that would suggest that there's expectation those expectations, even though they appear to be low, are actually also <laughs> quite high. But uh, yeah, but we also yeah, we also have to qualify again. How how often is this happening? It's not all players are behaving like this as well. So you do have to understand the vast majority of players aren't necessarily boring, but they are doing their jobs. And not every day you don't skip out the house to go to training. It's not rainbows everywhere. It, it can be. A, a bit of a grind and everyone say oh the, the job that you do the money you earn it's wonderful you know at the very least you should behave pro it's not always like that it isn't always like that it is like any other job and that's when you really have to dig deep and at certain days certain games get the job done but I was going to say to Steve as well that the people that we work with when when they we, we've worked with people who are completely unprepared and actually probably incapable of doing the job alongside us you must have experienced that so, so actually I found that former players coming into the media it's actually quite rare that actually any of them really want to take it seriously and be professional and understand the hard work that's needed to be good at that aspect as well. You're having to, to work very hard at them. And just, just some of the basic stuff, again, turning up 
20 minutes before a game start. This is it's not the way to do it, not knowing the names of players, not having done your homework on the teams. But that's a hierarchy gets, thing, isn't it? That, that because but they, if you've done that as a player, you think naturally that should be instinctive, that you move into another, and that should But if, you, that if you've done in? it as a player and you've got away with it because you are important to the team, and therefore, as we've spoken about, there are lots of different ways mm. of providing success for and your then team. And it's down to you, basically. Yeah, yeah. But suddenly, if you go into a new business, you will imagine yourself to be as important in that business. And sometimes you transfer across those assumptions that you make about your superiors in letting you get away with it uh, in your new industry. That's almost the case, though, of re-education. Probably within their career as a professional footballer, the, the facts were laid bare to them as to what was required and deviations from that could potentially make things very tricky for them. Whereas when they transition to that new career, whether or not that message is either delivered or, or hits home in quite the same way, and that's where perhaps the responsibility of the new, where the responsibility lies with the new employer to, to explain what's required and to, to make the, that person understand that having played football for many years aren't the only credentials you need for being successful in your post-football career. And that only lasts as, you for so long. Yes, to not be as deferential as perhaps managers yeah. might have been because the manager would have known that if they had let the player do that, that might actually benefit the team. The final point, Chinch, before we come to the soccer story, is how will the future look in terms of what players are expected to do in terms of professionalism? Because as Laura says in her email, <laughs> will we be locking players up in their training grounds because they are costing so much and because they are so integral to the way that a, a club might succeed? Are they going to eventually say, well, if we're going to pay you this amount of money, we're going to basically control you to the extent that you have to do exactly what we say all the time but and to also guarantee that they might turn up on time and train as hard as they're supposed but to. But that actually does happen to a degree. It might be the day before games. I, I know of clubs that, that do get their players together at their training grounds because they want to control, again, what they're eating, what they're thinking going into a, a game. We're not saying they're going to do it from, from Monday to Friday, but not, not any different. They're just the very basics that you would think, you know, turning up on time, training as well as you can. Um, again, putting everything into being prepared for a match day, performing as well as you can on a match day. Oh, they're all very basic and they're all just saying, well, that's not really, that is professionalism. It is doing your job. And there are different elements, many different elements to a, a, a footballer's job on and off the pitch as well. That you just say, well, that, that's just really basic things. But the stories you tend to hear are turning late, for, turning up late for training, not really, you know, bothering during a game. And it tends to be, you have to look at the individual, the circumstances, home life, everything that's involved in why this is happening. And it will continue to happen in every walk of life, in every different job, certainly within football. But as I say, I think that the vast majority of players don't behave in that way and are reliable and trustworthy. Because that's what an employer ultimately wants, whether it be the owner of a football club or, or any business. You want your employees to invest themselves in your business. Yes, you're paying them. They've got a job to do. They have to understand that. Whether it be in the media or in football, job to do, do it as well as you possibly can. It won't be brilliant every single day, but that doesn't mean, well, today I don't feel great. I'm going to turn up 20 minutes late. That's when professionalism, I feel, has to kick in and you have to have to go through kind of difficult days or difficult weeks because that's what is expected of you. That's not above and beyond the call of duty. That's what you expect from, from an employee who's paid. The amount of money is kind of immaterial. It's just what we expect from you day in and day out. And uh, I suppose to bring it full circle, the grand irony is, is that with the Ndombele Mourinho situation, we don't know the full details of what Ndombele's lack of professionalism might be, according to Jose Mourinho, but it doesn't serve Mourinho to deal with it unprofessionally, yeah. if that is how and most people see his reaction. Yeah, to I'm, I'm, as a former player, I'm looking at Ndombele as a current player and saying, well, 
I wouldn't like to be treated in that way. But again, we don't know the full circumstances behind it. But, but regardless, even if Marina has tried behind closed doors to, to sort this issue out, if he then feels he can then go into the public domain and say the things that he said and publicly criticise one individual, it hasn't happened a lot. You don't see it happening a lot because coaches know the problems that that might cause with the individual and with the dressing room as well and with the fans of that club. So it is it is a risky, really risky tactic for a, a coach to take, regardless of the uh, kind of the size of the coach. And Mourinho, of course, is is so well known that maybe he feels people will listen and people will see what he's saying and, and not see actually the, the way in which he's, he's conducting himself is not maybe as 90% of coaches would, would currently behave. And have your teammates ever got uh, ratted, dug out by uh, a manager in public? We, we all did, but it tended to happen in the dressing room. I know recently there's a guy who... who so I know he's gone us. in front of a camera and done it. No, no, no. no, no but I mean, in the dressing room, that's bad. That's it actually, was Andy Booth that did it That's worse. In the I'd rather... <laughs> and again, what happened? Being blamed... For something, and you know, Joe Rowe did it at Everton. It's not dugouts the wrong probably the, the way of it. It's just basically shining a light on something that has actually happened. You're not you're not saying it hasn't happened. You're just pointing the finger and saying that simply wasn't good enough today. And in front of the dress, why do it in front of the dressing room again? It's to maybe embarrassed to a degree. But then what the good coaches do is on the Monday is you go out and you work to rectify that. You don't just crucify somebody in the dressing room or in public and then just leave it and say, over to you. Because you're the coach. You're in charge of the situation. He's your player. He's something you then have to do. But all players have been through this. There was someone who worked for Sky recently who, who had some strong opinions about uh, a coach who's now lost his job. And a lot of it was off the back of, well, I don't like him because he dug me out a couple of times. But it, it's, it's something you have to expect. If you don't perform, you let your teammates down. Your teammates will tell you. Des Walker would tell me, and I knew I'd gone wrong. He'd tell me where I'd gone wrong. So you get it from your teammates and from your coach, but it's then, right, how can we rectify this? Because you're going to have to play a lot more games for me. So I, as a coach, then have to get this situation sorted, improve, make sure that doesn't happen again. And then the challenge is there for the coach. Does he really want to work with that player to improve them? It just doesn't feel like airing your dirty linen in public has ever been a tactic that has reaped positivity further down the line so it, it, it seems it's a risky tactic isn't it, it seems yeah. extraordinary to me that any manager would take that approach unless it was absolutely a last resort and I think for Jose Mourinho the fact that he's done it for Ndombele isn't the only aspect of it it's the fact that he's done it lots of times and now has done it with Ndombele that makes you think airing the, the dirty laundry is one thing but airing it over and over and over again your neighbours are start going to start to worry and again I, I look at it as he's a big money signing Tottenham spent a lot of money on a lot of players and Mourinho didn't sign these players he's maybe thinking well I'll make an example of, of kind of a standout player for big money I don't this I might be wrong might in be this might be a free hit might see it yeah, like, let's say, try well, it and see what this happens this is how you've got it wrong he's not my player if I'd signed I, I wouldn't have signed him I'd have signed someone better than this but this is the mistakes that you made and I'm dealing I'm having to play these players that, that I don't fully like and I should take some responsibility for this because I did put having admired him at, in, at Lyon I did put Ndombele in my fantasy team at the start of the season but so he's a, he is it, a, he's a good be. player undoubtedly he's a very good player so I saw him saw him play against Manchester City for Lyon in the game they won in the Champions League last season he was absolutely brilliant yeah so I mean basically he was hamstrung from the minute I, that I did that so apologies yeah it's Stephen Fox but, but if Mourinho was dig out Stephen by yeah, the way yeah. where's Jose Mourinho digging out Stephen for but, ruining if, but if Mourinho again you, you, that, that's the player that he is it's getting that player back and if he feels doing this washing his dirty in public gets that player back then then great but I, I'm just not convinced by it it is time for never mind Jack and Ori what a soccer story this is when the very professional Andy Hinchcliffe tells a tale from his playing or broadcasting days, both of which have been sensationally professional, with all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details, which essentially are unprofessional, removed. Well, this is a very rare soccer story. I don't think I've done it too many times where I've combined my stellar football career with my journalistic brilliance. Uh, you look surprised, Steve, but it, it is true. 
Uh, I'll write so it I down. If you thought, read it back, it does make a lot of sense. I've, I've, I've um, never thought that saying footballers' names out loud is journalism, but I'll add it, it, is, to, I'll it, add it to my CV. Is. Now, I have told the story about, um, or just maybe it wasn't a story, maybe I just mentioned it, cleaning Mick McCarthy. Everyone knows. Everyone must know. Just Mick cleaning McCarthy. Mick McCarthy. <laughs> Not cleaning Mick McCarthy. I was just going to say <laughs> his boots. He's soap down with a oh, hose no, no, no. brush. Whoa, 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 whoa! That didn't happen. That didn't happen. <laughs> I didn't a, clean Mick McCarthy. Man. Did you need a yeah, long-handled broom? To Can <laughs> I just add boots to the end of Neville that sentence, Southall's please? Brush. Yeah. That he used to clean himself. <laughs> the head with of a yard brush. Yes, I did. Is do what that. you used to clean? No, Mick no, no, McCarthy. no. So I clean Mick McCarthy's boots. What I was as an apprentice for now, I should say everybody surely knows Mick McCarthy. His 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 career, his coaching career international manager Republic of Ireland World Cup manager as well so you know he's done everything so he was at Man City he must have been I think he's 10 years older than me so I was about 16 in my apprentice days and back then it doesn't happen anymore apprentices clean the boots of the players so I had I think David Phillips who was a Welsh international Mick McCarthy they were my responsibility clean the boots you pack them in the in the skips when there's away games, the shin pads and everything that the so you got a huge responsibility and that was how it was. And I just presumed I have I've always presumed during my career when I retired that Mick would clearly I did such a good job on his boots that he must remember me cleaning his boots, brushing him down in the why, shower. Why not brushing him down in the shower? You don't go anywhere near Mick in a shower situation. It just get you in a headlock. Um, Andy, I finished training. Now time. <laughs> So anyway, for the I've, I've been around, I've not interviewed Mick, we, we've done games when he was at Ipswich and Wolves, so I've done many games and I've said like a cursory hello to him, but I think we talked about the uh, the Steve McLaren story when he came onto the gantry, we have a, a coach on the gantry doing, being part of the commentary team. Now Mick McCarthy was involved in the game Derby Forest recently, Mick McCarthy was our kind of coaching analyst, so, and again I've not seen Mick for a long time. Um, but it's always in my head, you know. I cleaned him, so I had to look at his trainers when he came in just to see. But he, he, you're, you arrived with a bucket of water and a soap. Absolutely, it's ready to go. <laughs> no, no, big to sponge, his, ready to clean his trainers. <laughs> to clean his trainers. But he, he came in, he came in, and he, the, the lockdown hadn't been kind to his hair. He did look like Doc from Back to the Future. <laughs> I didn't mention it. He, he did say, people have said I look like someone from, from film. And I said, I think I know from, who they mean. From film. From film. <laughs> I, I know who they mean. So anyway, during, during the commentary, G- Gary Weaver, who's the commentator, he knows all about this story. I've mentioned it a million times. And uh, so it, there must have been a lull in play. Clearly there was a lull in play. And Gary turned to Mick and said, um, well, by the way, Mick, did you, you, you must remember that you know, when you were at Man City, Andy used to, uh, to clean your boots. It must be something that, that stuck in your mind. So I'm looking at Mick, big puppy dog eyes, thinking <laughs> this is the moment that he's going to acknowledge the brilliant job. And Mick McCarthy, in his own inimitable way, turned looked at me and he said you'll be amazed how many things i've forgotten in my lifetime and that's one of them <laughs> i was devastated stephen devastated i'm 51 i'm a grandfather and mick mccarthy this is one of my great memories of being a kid okay i got into the first team and, and kind of had success and moved on not to have it and won things but cleaning mick's boots is always something i thought well that's just such an important job he must have known and then he must have watched my career my stellar career and he must think oh I'm really proud of him he used to clean my boots you know when I played for England he hadn't even acknowledged that I was I was the guy that, that cleaned his, his boots and I was I was filled with a great disappointment I must admit but the way he said it you'll be amazed how many things I've forgotten in my lifetime and that's one of them Derby on the attack now <laughs> so it's like and I just but the, the, how it made me feel I was Deflated, to say the least. So Steve McLaren built you up by saying that some of your comments were analytical goals. And Mick McCarthy with one (sighs) guttural Yorkshire 
throwaway sentence yeah. has crossed you back down. I don't mind criticising my tactical knowledge because it is pants, but actually just something that is so important or should be so important, like my boots were never clean because things changed and, and uh, apprentices or, or young academy, they didn't do that. They weren't, they weren't health and safety. And all that stuff. They, they didn't do that anymore. We had a kit a kick guy, a boot guy. So, but I, I'm sure I would, if someone had cleaned my boots, it, it would kind of stick with me, the name of the person that did that. Especially when they went on to international stardom, you think he might kind of dine out on that. Okay, he's been to the World Cup of the Republic of Ireland. But Andy Hinchcliffe cleaned his boots. Would he not be really proud of that fact? Clearly not. He didn't even remember it. Keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Stephen, Andy and Rory and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another Set Piece Menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. We started in what was at the time quite heavy rain and now we have glorious sunshine to finish welcome to manchester <laughs> chinch the goal behind you can you stick around until the kids get in from school i think they'd love to take some shots from a former england international what it, what is that is that a, is that a goal i've actually got a tar- i've got a target a top bins target do you think if i if i set it up you'd be able to hit it first time is that a full size goal yeah they looks a little bit sm- you, smaller than i remember you have got a lot bigger since your playing days chinch yeah cuz normally I was kind of trundling into the back of that structure, picking the ball up and just kicking it back to the halfway line because yet again we'd conceded. But I, I never really... That's the goal, is it? Yeah, Interesting. You've done yeah. well not to bang your head often then. Yeah. It's quite low, isn't it, that crossbar? That is... Is that is that a child's goal? Uh, would anybody like to hear the f***ed off by Jose 11 that I mentioned yes, earlier? Yes, I would. Yes, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We may all retweet it, so the person who uh, tweeted it originally will get uh, credit for it that I'm not <laughs> able to give right now. In goal, Petr Cech. Could also be Ike Casillas, I guess. Felipe Luis uh, is both right back and left back in this. <laughs> Does he have a twin brother? Is there more? Is there more than one? Leonardo Benucci and David Luiz are the two centre backs. Leonardo and Dumbele. <laughs> Tonga and Dumbele is slotted in as a holding midfielder behind Kevin De Bruyne. Juan Mata is a number ten. Ian Robin and Mohamed Salah either side of Romelu Lukaku up front. So all to all players that have been effed off. That's by a Jose. Champions League winning team, right? <laughs> That's there, not a bad lineup, is it?